You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Teddy Valley, who's the founder and CIO of Perval Global Management. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks. So could you give the uh, audience a little bit about your background, how you got into the finance industry and your journey to founding Perval Global? Absolutely. So um, originally I was to go way back. I was a soccer player. I was planning on playing professionally um, and then unfortunately in, in college I got too many concussions and uh, the doctor said look you got to hang up the boots so I needed to find a new outlet to basically channel my competitive drive and, and, and time uh, which happened to be the, the markets which is a perfect blend of competitiveness and also um, I, I played poker growing up and it was a source of income and it's, it's, it's a perfect blend of the two uh, help pay for beer in high school and whatnot. Um, so I started, you know, I uh, went to school for finance, studied finance, came to New York after, worked as an equity analyst, um, understanding how businesses make their money, how to, how to value businesses, and then recognized that I'm not really, uh, it doesn't suit my personality. I'm not really, uh, I don't want to wait around for five years to recognize value. And um, my personality is much more trading oriented. So I, I gravitated more towards the trading and macro elements of, of the markets. Um, worked at two uh, buy side hedge funds here in the city, uh, in New York City. And then uh, in October of 2018, started my own firm um, and uh, have been cranking since. Awesome. So, you know, we've been going through the COVID economic crisis. So what is it that you've been watching in this time and, you know, what are your whole? What are your thoughts on the whole uh, V-shaped recovery and the pent-up demand narrative? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, I think you've seen there's this very there's a very large dichotomy going on in the markets, or primarily on the fundamental side, uh, which has to do with durable goods, um, which in effect is the transition from uh, cities to the suburbs. So, given this migration, you've seen the largest four month demand ever for houses, for autos, for home improvement, things such as appliances. Um, and given that you've seen this monster transition, a lot of the economic data looks like it's, you know, doing a V. Um, now total services um, or total consumption uh, is actually still down um, because of the services element. So durable goods are really only about 8% of this is, you know, autos. Uh, washing machines, um, aircrafts, that type of thing is only 8% of GDP, while services is about 43% of GDP. Um, and interestingly, if you combine the two, we're still down, but durables are above their high because of this large migration. So what's been happening is you've had a significant, an unprecedented amount of demand for these, for autos, for households, which has caused commodity prices to rise. And as that's been happening, there's been these huge supply disruptions. Um, for example, on the saw on the lumber side, sawmills went offline as the the as the crisis was breaking out because they didn't see the demand. They totally misjudged it. 
um, and didn't really see, you know, this migration that's happening. So the supply of lumber went offline and that's been further uh, affected by some of these recent wildfires. On the copper side, copper uh, total supply globally is down about 5.9%, which is a huge number. So you've had a, the, one of the largest supply shocks ever uh, on a commodity for these, some of these commodities. At the same time, you're having the largest four month demand, you know, either pent up demand or also this transition from um, cities to suburbs um, causing commodities to rise, which is causing break-ins to rise. And this is the real interesting element, I think, going forward is the, the rise in break-evens is being interpreted as, um, you know, a very inflationary impulse because of, you know, fiscal stimulus, also the Fed's changing of the inflation, their sort of inflation um, target, uh, which in reality, it looks more to be just this dynamic that's going on that seems to be on a short-term basis. The housing um, piece could, you know, continue on over time, but, you know, like I mentioned to you, either offline, offline here a little ahead of time, New York City looks like it's coming back, um, you know, in a big way. And, but, and at the same time, you have, you know, prices for apartments in New York City that are down significantly. So it's that much more attractive. So I think this trend that we've seen over the past few months is more of a short-term dynamic and will start to fade out going forward, um, which also you get a little bit of, there's also a little bit of an air pocket if we don't have uh, additional stimulus passed, which right now I think the probabilities are now shifting in favor of nothing being passed before the election. Um, so over the next few months, the things I'm really looking at is, you know, how are these durable goods? Um, and maybe, maybe I'll talk a little bit about how this affects the equity market. So with break-evens rising so much and nominal interest rates not, you know, moving, the real rate of interest has gone down significantly. And we put a chart together before that real rates have been a, 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 the driver of equity multiples. So you've seen equity multiples just go through the roof, right? Uh, that's probably primarily because break-evens have gone through the roof because of these dynamics I just described, which is causing all, uh, all multiples to move higher. So going forward, if we operate under the assumption that this fades or supply comes back online for a lot of these commodities, it's likely break-evens are gonna come in a little bit and if they start to come in, then we think that's going to weigh on equity multiples, which is why you're seeing a very strong correlation between lumber and the NASDAQ, for example. So we're quite negative on technology, uh, starting to really warm up the value over growth, um, which is the first time that I've said that in a, in a very long time, which means, that, um, which means that the bias for rates is likely flat to higher um, versus lower. Um, but you know, the, the way I think we get there from the value to growth perspective is more likely, um, more likely that actually, let me say, I think real rates were likely to go higher nominal rates. Um, I have to see more of an improvement in the economy. I think a growth unwind, which is, we look like we're at the beginning of sort of the beginning innings of it, uh, will go down more than the value components, which are still very beaten up. You look at airlines, for example, are significantly, you know, barely out, marginally off the low, significantly off the highs. Um, oil equities still doing quite poorly. Financials um, don't love financials, but I, I can see if we if we if we uh, 
if we can if we constantly improve and 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 you know get into next year i can see them doing better so i think these are large shifts and things i'm looking at sort of on the global macro front what do you think of uh you know the narrative that you know central banks which have pumped up a ton of money into the economy are the key drivers of equity prices right now and have caused sort of an equity bubble or a bear market rally in this uh, in the market so what are your thoughts on that yeah the i think they i think their transition on the inflation policy uh helped out with break evens to rise which helped out equity multiples i think there 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 was unprecedented amount of of liquidity injections from the federal reserve which we have a few models on that leads equity prices by two to three months that was incredible that was very clear that equities would go higher relative to the fundamentals um that's starting to fade now so the recent uh, you know relative to the size of, of, of the equity markets the amount of stimulus that's happening is 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 the rate of change is deteriorating significantly um they i think they've been instrumental in getting asset prices back up they've also been instrumental through their inflation targeting and they've been purchasing a significant amount of tips market so right now they own about 20 percent of the tips market which is up from eight percent prior to, to covid which i think is also having an influence on the break-even market um which therefore is having a influence on okay. equities and primarily primarily tech so they're so i think they've been instrumental in it um and the next few months get really tricky 2021 makes way more sense to me i can see myself getting pretty optimistic um well relatively more optimistic as we progress through 2021 but from here to there i think we're going to have i think we're in the middle of it and likely going to have a little bit of difficulty uh as tech unwinds so you know you can get there from a few different angles one the economy continues to pick up and if the economy continues to pick up we get a vaccine anything tech's going to get crushed uh and a lot of these value names are going to start outperforming Two, if you know supply on the commodity side starts coming back or demand for these durable goods starts to fade, which seems very likely with no more stimulus payments, and these primarily are one-time items, right? Like you're not going to move out of the city twice in the same amount of you know in, in a couple months. It's it's sort of a one-off. Now the question is if that continues, um, which I think is less likely, uh, especially if we get a vaccine. So the sort of the distribution of outcomes seem to really be negative for tech and skewed positive uh, for the value equity side of things. Um, and I think that would be the, the, that essentially means that the, the outcomes for real interest rates are likely higher um, than lower. And, you know, one last thing that I want to ask you related to COVID was, um, you know, a lot of people have attributed the rise in commodities to inflation caused by central bank printing. While a lot of other people have said, you know, there's no real inflation, nothing's gonna happen. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think inflation's gonna come? And, you know, do you think that, you know, over the next say three or five years, we might see some stagflation with both inflation and unemployment uh, pretty high? Yeah, inflation is such a, a funny and interesting topic in the financial community. It, it drives, everyone seems to talk about it, but, um, you know, it's it's never inflation. It's such such a fascinating topic because everyone has a different view of it. What causes it? To me, 
what ultimately causes inflation is persistent demand. So the, ba the most basic uh, leading indicator that you can put together that has an unbelievable hit rate and sort of view is if you overlay the ISM with um, CPI, the ISM leads by about 18 months. So whatever the ISM, the ISM is effectively growth, right? So whatever the ISM does, 18 months later, that's where you get core CPI prices. Now, I think as an asset, uh, as someone that's active in markets, the thing you want to pay attention to, though, is the break-even market. Because the break-evens, as I just explained, right, are driving these equity multiples. It's not CPI. No one knows what the monthly CPI number is going to be. That's not driving right? It's, it's the, it's the on the ground today demand, uh, and primarily for commodities. So the thing that I'm wrestling with right now is I think the dollar is likely biased higher, but I can see a scenario. Um, if this scenario where it just continues lower continue, happens, then you'll likely get higher inflation via commodities. And I think that's the highest probability outcome over call it two to three years. Um, you'll get inflation via these commodity prices versus um, it's effectively increased demand because the everything's priced in dollars is the, the price of dollar goes lower than those commodities are, you know, uh, cheaper for it to, to consume. So look, right now, I do not think we have the banks are tightening credit, right? So a significant amount of banks are tightening mortgage credit, um, credit card lines, uh, Capital One just cut their credit card lines. Those are not typically the things you want to see for persistent higher inflation. You want to see that going the other way. You want to see credit conditions easing. Uh, and you're seeing the same thing in Europe. Some of the credit conditions are tightening. So you're having a tightening in the real economy but a loosening in the financial markets because of what the Fed's done uh, with a lot of their asset purchases as well, especially in the uh, corporate bond market. Um, so this dichotomy, I think it's solved over the next few months. Uh, and as we get into next year, then you could likely see some of the, you know, pick up in, um, in inflation going forward. But I do not think what they've done currently uh, is very, if they can, if let me let me let me phrase this correctly. If they consistently do stimulus programs like they've been doing, I think that's extremely inflationary. If it, if they're able to constantly pump out money like this and keep rates this low, that's unbelievably inflationary. Now, if this is a one-off, you know we're having a difficult time passing this needed stimulus right now, because of what's going on in Congress. If that changes after the election, and the Democrats take. Uh, both the House and Senate and the presidency, then there's a scenario where we could have a, a lot of inflation and some pretty um, remarkable moves in, in in markets, which would be un, would be so much fun to trade. Um, and that's sort of you know I think also the the iteration of policy is likely the probabilities of the next iteration of policy are moving closer to those outcomes, maybe not that extreme but more you know government fiscal sort of uh spending and some economic handouts um which is very negative i think for asset prices but very positive for commodities um which is a trade that i'm thinking about um over the next three to five years you say that last bit again 
Yes, which the the why it's negative. Yes. For asset prices. Yes. So positive for commodities. So, if you think about these programs, in order to hand out money to individuals, you need to be able to you need to finance that somehow. Uh, in terms of financing that, you need to basically issue uh, treasuries, and by issuing treasuries, that takes money out of the system. So you're saying, okay, we need to raise ten dollars. So you go to everybody in the system and say, hey, guys, we need $10. So either the people that have cash give you that $10 or people that have equities have to sell that equity and give you uh, basically those dollars. But you need to somehow someone needs to give you those $10. A way to do that is if the Fed buys it. But right now, based on what they've said, they're not increasing their purchases. So um, every incremental stimulus package needs this money coming out of the market. However, at the same time, that is then going to consumers that are buying goods. And those consumers buying those goods are causing the prices of those goods to rise because now, now they have more money. So it's, and uh, on top of this, if you have, you know, these, these goods and, and um, be like, for example, the, what's happened recently in the durable goods, right? Then inflation is likely going to pick up and interest rates are likely going to go higher. And if that happens, that's very bad for technology. Correct. And the whole industry on the equity front is basically has a huge deflationary trade on right now with the overweights of tech. The amount of capital that has flown in technology that is overweight technology is just mind boggling. So on the S&P, for example, right now, $11.5 trillion of the market cap of the S&P is tech, which is around 30%. Industrials and materials, I'm sorry, uh, energy and materials are roughly, um, I believe, one, one, uh, about two trillion, maybe a little less than that. So if you have constant stimulus, there's money coming out of tech, it's likely going, there's, because of the sheer size of technology, it's likely going to spread across some of these other very small sectors, like energy, for example, is two points of the S&P now which is just insane. It's like not even a, it's like a, like a rounding error. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, to my mind, the probabilities of going forward are um, a lot of these beaten up sectors. This is more as we get into next year, I think we still have, we're still in a period of negative liquidity and we are a little on the difficult front. Um, but these, you know, sectors, I think have a lot more upside given the, higher increasing probabilities of of what we saw recently continuing to happen um and if that continues in perpetuity then we're absolutely going to get inflation because that would therefore cause demand to consistently increase right and as demand consistently increases prices go higher exactly and this is what's happened recently right is there has been a huge amount of demand but there's also a very big supply element to it so as the supply normalizes, it's likely the commodity prices will either you know chop around or, or come down, um, which you know would weigh on inflation, as opposed to consistent demand, right? That would cause inflation to rise. Um, so yeah, increasing in uh, large scale increase in treasury issuance would be negative for uh, risk assets, but positive for uh, commodities. And also dollar negative, which therefore would be dollar negative, 
which would be positive for commodities also. Now, one of the things that you guys do at Perval is you build like your own prop indicator. So could you walk us through the process of how you actually build your own like proprietary indicator? Yeah. So it, it typically um, is, uh, you know, a Saturday morning with a cup of coffee and uh, Excel and just constantly going through different relationships and in markets, uh, commodities, rates, equities, ratios, understanding the driving forces of, um, you know, inflation, for example, like that, the lead I told you, you know, I figured out towards the beginning, because I was just overlaying everything. I said, okay, look, like if theoretically in my head, if demand is increasing, right, um, then you can charge a higher price or something. Right. Um, so it's, it's essentially saying, thinking macro at a high level, what in the sequence of events and the process of, you know, buying a good from start to finish or buying a service from start to finish, what are the things that go into that? What are the things that sort of lead in that process? Um, and then literally playing around with, with ratios and Excel spreadsheets for, you know, hundred hours a week um, and finding these relationships um, that I think give us an edge in, in looking at global markets and, and trading them. So do you mostly like just trade correlations between like your indicators and what's going on in the market? That's a good question. So we, so we have probably 17 leading indicators right now that gives us an idea of where the global growth backdrop is going to be over the next uh, 12 to 16 months. And those leading indicators are then confirmed by shorter leading indicators. Um, that then increase the probabilities of our growth scenario, right, being correct. So it gives us a lot of, a big window that then gets narrowed. And the last sort of iteration of the process is to, we have this thing called the real-time PMI. And the real-time PMI is all these ratios, copper to gold is a very basic one, that give us a 90% correlation with the actual global PMI. And we get that daily because it's based on the prices of assets. So that's our last confirmation in our fundamental process um, for long leading indicators, confirmed by short leading indicators, confirmed by our real-time PMI that gives us this probabilistic framework for where growth sits. Now, the issue is over the past two years, the correlation between, for example, bull proxy on the ground demand by raw industrial commodities Raw industrial commodities and emerging market equities have historically had a 95% correlation since 1995. That has faded from 90% in 2018 to now 72%. Past two years, there's been these um, there's been actually inverse correlations at time between growth and equity prices. This is primarily the equity side. On the bond side, the bonds have tracked all, all of our fundamental things, and I think they're much less influenced by liquidity and are primarily driven by uh, growth and inflation. Equity side of things, um, we also, so then let's say we, we've come to a conclusion on growth. If our technical process, and this is all the stuff that we build out also internally, does not confirm some of the fundamental things that we're seeing, we'll trade the technical. Because what's happened is you've had these inverse correlations and actually an increase in the correlation to liquidity significant increase. So the exact time that the fundamental correlation broke down, the liquidity correlation to equities has gone through the roof. So on the equity side of things, at a headline basis, you have to trade these liquidity cycles 
recently versus the fundamental. Because if you're trading the fund, where the fundamentals are, it, you know, it doesn't really matter. You're going to get run over. Um, so that so we've we've been really working and developing, um, and I'm working with a quant right now who's an incredibly smart kid to um, to help us really narrow down and be able to trade uh, to, to to trade against our fundamental view and stay around until the market it breaks right and 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 then begins to to, to confirm it. So we've had a, a very, very large increase on, um, on our technical process um, and, and, and developing and building that out to be much more quantitative. So when you, when you say technicals, do you mostly look at, say, chart patterns, RSI, that kind of thing, or do you have, like, you know, your own proprietary technical indicators? They're all proprietary. So they're all... <laughs> all models that we build out in-house oh, wow. that no one else, like one of them is called Bermuda Ball, for example, and I built Bermuda Ball on the beach in Bermuda, um, which is how it got, how it's got its name. So I actually, it was funny. I was like, yeah, you know, uh, Bermuda Ball showing this and someone was like, oh yeah, I never heard of it. I'm like, yeah, because, you know, we built it on the beach in Bermuda, you probably wouldn't have heard of it. Um, but look, we, we look at, um, we look at charts, right? So charts are extremely important, but that's not, it is central to, I don't think we have an edge by looking at charts. I think we have an edge in a lot of the stuff we're building out internally. Um, I think the technical analysis for your chart problems, RSI divergences, you know, that the, 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 the stuff, the basic type of stuff is, is very important, but to have an edge, I think you need to have something on top of that. You know, one of the teams that, that's on the Perval website is macro is back. So what exactly does that mean? And no, yeah, so what exactly does that mean? Yeah, that's a good question. So over the past 10 years, macro returns have been horrible. Um, about less than 1%, or about a, a point per year. So it's underperformed equities, the strategy, and essentially every year except one year, but it was still down in that one year. Uh, that outperformed. So the reason that this happened was primarily because the interest rates have been completely very, very much suppressed, which has caused volatility to come down, which has caused currency volatility to come down. So there hasn't been a lot of large shifts in many of the macro assets, primarily because the central banks are pegging short rates very, very you know low, and we haven't really had any and that much growth. Um, so we have a few long-term models that we built out that show four returns for equities based on positioning, based on uh, valuation, and all of them for the U.S. are indicating that the forward real rate of return is going to be negative. So the past 10 years, it's been like 14% per year that they've been up. Now we're looking at a situation where they're actually going to be flat to down, which is interesting, the same thing that happened in 2000. Um, in terms of returns and the four 10-year returns. So if you don't make any money in equities, right, you, you can make money in bonds, but we broke apart the bond market. And if you hold a bond on a passive basis, you're also going to have a negative real rate of return. So, you know, I think there's going to be very large shifts going on um, with some of the, the policies that we talked about previously, um, which are going to have influences on interest rates um and given that equities are not going to return the only way that you're likely going to be able to make money is to trade 
these growth cycles. So call it the global PMI. So how the global PMI fluctuates up and down from peak to trough. You want to be overweight and underweight certain assets. You want to be long short bonds, right? So trading those cycles where there's going to be multiple of them from now through the next 10 years, similar to how there was, you know, two 50% drawdowns from 2000, 2013, and then two huge bull markets of up hundred percent. However, from high in 2000 to 2013, the equity market made zero money, went nowhere. So I think we're going into that environment and in that environment, there's a significantly, uh, it's, it's a sort of a macro okay. traders dream versus you know, equities just going straight higher every day, um, which is what we've seen for the past 10 years. Well, if, you know, if you take a uh, journey back into history, in the 1970s, commodities were the best asset class. In the 1980s, it was Japanese stocks. In the 1990s, it was stock-com stocks. Then in 2000, it was commodities and Chinese stocks. And over the last 10 years, it's been uh, tech and specifically big tech. So what do you think are going to be the best performing assets in uh, from 2020 into 2030? I think it's probably going to be things that are positively influenced by a lower dollar. So emerging market equities, I think are going to do very well. Um, I think the crypto space is going to do very well as it develops. And um, it's very influenced by liquidity. Um, and, you know, this, the, this, like, looking forward, I think there's going to be very big positive shifts in liquidity. Uh, unfortunately, some negative at times. But overall, I think the crypto space is going to be um, quite positive, especially as it you know gets built out um, and more companies and individuals start to use it in, in their day-to-day -day lifestyles. Um, so I think pro likely the, the crypto space, given the, the sheer size of it being quite small, has a very positive for return, uh, one based on flows. Um, so, you know, the scenario I just outlaid is, is pretty diffi difficult for all risk assets uh, or for risk assets and then also for bonds on a passive basis. So that's gonna be a very large problem. So, you know, if you wanna hold something on a passive basis that potentially has a lot of upside, likely would be Bitcoin. Um, you know, at times it's going to you know fall 50%, so it can fall 50% from here. But if you're looking for a store of value during a period where nothing appreciates, then I think it's it's a it's a it's a very interesting look. Uh, also, you have a huge tailwind from millennials um, inheriting significant amounts of money over the next 10 to 20 years, and some of the you know the recent their patterns for investing are um, you know buying things that they like and understand and you know that whether that be apple whether that be tesla that type of thing and bitcoin is one of the things that they can get their heads around because they've grown up with a phone right since the, they've right. they've been around so they understand not necessarily the technology uh a lot too but not everyone but they understand uh it as a source of value um so i think that's also a very very positive tailwind going forward what are your thoughts on gold and silver and, you know, other precious metals um, for say the next 12 to 24 months? Um, it's a good question. I think it's, they are completely driven by the, the dynamic between inflation uh, that we talked about and interest rates. So 
by the real rate of interest. Um, so if I think the higher probability, I think they need to digest a lot of the recent gains. So I think the probabilities favor digestion to downside versus a big leg up. However, that being said, I think next year, as you progress through next year, I think the bias is likely up. Um, so you said what, 12 to 24? Yeah. I think positive, uh, 12 to 24 out. We just need to get by this little period here where I think we could have some hiccups and real interest rates and you know the durable goods moves uh, and some of the supply coming back online from some of these commodities. What are you also, looking at? Let me just, the one other little, I think that that's a very, you know, the amount of allocations to the space are still incredibly small um, versus, you know, people are starting to warm up to it. They're starting to say, look, like all this bondy printing is going on. Um, so I think it, it has a, a positive, also a positive tailwind from a flows perspective, but from a technical and sort of fundamental short term, I think you've got a little problem. Sorry. What are you looking at going into the election that's in about one and a half months? Yeah, I think um, I think you, you just want to be, I think right now you want to be positioned for one of the things uh, the structure in the portfolio and thinking about the portfolio is how do you win under two, you know, um, under either candidate. So I think the theme that I've outlined is that technology is going to have a, a, a difficult time. Um, say the Democrats win um, and they put forward large amounts of stimulus that's very inflationary um, for prices uh, in the short term, which would mean that rates likely go much higher. Uh, inflation likely goes much higher. Dollar gets destroyed, um, which is very negative for tech. Um, I think if Trump wins, some of his business friendly policies and the lack of um, uncertainty likely help some of the cyclicals. So for example, you know, the Biden's very negative on, um, on clean, on, on, on energy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. So uh, if Trump wins, then some of those sectors could really do well, um, which would likely mean that money comes out of technology. So setting up a portfolio for you know, a Biden win means probably negative tech. A Trump win means flows likely to some of these other sectors. Um, I don't think I have an edge in predicting the election. Um, I do think that one needs to um, Sorry, I lost you there. Hey, you, you got me? Yeah. I don't know if it went into self-driving mode. I don't know what the hell that is, but that's pretty interesting. Um, so I think you need to think about um, potentially a democratic sweep, what that means for asset prices. Um, and, you know, under the assumption that Trump wins, what does that mean for sector allocations? Um, and then also on, on, on a democratic win, you have a, a large increase in taxes, which is going to be very negative for a lot of equities. Um, so it's really, you know, positioning yourself and thinking about, you know, I, I don't think I have an edge in this. How do I try to stay alive and take advantage of some of the, the overlapping probabilities between the, the, the two candidates? All right.
So, and what are the major risks you're looking at over the next one to two years to, you know, the overall um, equity markets along with commodities and the dollar? Yeah, major risks I think are that there's permanent, and I think this is a high probability in the US that there's permanent small business impairment. Um, we did a lot of work on the small businesses and you're starting to see it in some of the numbers that they just don't have the cash to sustain themselves during this, this period where, you know, a lot of things are transitioning to online. Um, a lot of places are still shut down, right? Like dining in New York City is still not open. They, we get 25% at the end of this month, uh, September 30th, that they can start serving. So, yeah, and, and we didn't just, we failed to pass another stimulus bill. So there's a, there's a potential for large permanent damage that's growth that's just not gonna come back in the US. Um, and this is actually sort of the thesis for why I think policy in the US becomes even more radical and, and crazy. Um, if you do, and I think it's a high probability, get this permanent small business impairment. These are, you know, depending on what the number is. So they, they represent 44% of, of, of um, employment, 47% of GDP, right? So if you have a lot of these guys go under, then that's very poor for, for the overall economy, which if that continues to, you know, be very poor and, and not pick up, increases the probabilities of more radical Fiscal policy, because monetary policy can't really do any, to do much more. I mean, they can try to buy, you know, like equities, but uh, as Japan has tried and cornered the ETF market and whatnot, it's it's over the long run. I think it's a losing proposition. So, which puts the balance of probabilities probably towards more radical um, monetary policy, similar to what we just saw. So, a risk would be, you know. Um, permanent impairment in the US would be very bad. And also if the markets, central banks are going all out right now, right? If that fails to work right. and the markets lose faith that they have the ability to do anything and fiscal does not fill that void, then you have a, you have a tough, tough go for asset prices. And to wrap up the podcast, if you had to give your best advice for investors today, you know, what would that advice be? Uh, I think probably stay open-minded. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different scenarios that can happen over the next few months. So you want to stay open-minded, you want to stay nimble. I don't think this is probably the best time to uh, be trading a lot of risk, um, given some of the potential, the volatility of potential outcomes. Um, but you want to have a game plan and then as the probabilities shift in your favor or you get more of clarity on what's going to happen, then, you know, trade your game plan. But think through all the, the possibilities and try to stay nimble. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.